So today we're going to talk about soul searching. Um, this is a, very interesting how this all kind of came about. A, a few weeks ago, Dave and I had been talking and there was an opportunity for me to come up here and um, you know, I've been praying on what to talk about and I just was, first I was going to talk about music because that was such a huge influence in my life. So I started studying King David and his journey and how his, how he connected emotionally with the arts, you know, to, to become what he was. And I got all the way to the end of that and scrapped it. I was like, that's not what, that's not what I want to talk about. And then, um, proceeded to get hit with like three life changing earth shattering moments, um, that, that just completely changed the way that I thought about life. And, um, you know, we've had kind of a dark cloud over our family over the last few years with various things going on. Not to say that God has not been good to us. We've been amazingly blessed. But through the blessings and through the challenges, there's always growth. And if anything, these things that happened were an opportunity for me to stop and pause and listen, which is not something I do very often. Um, and through that process, I became so much more connected with who I am and who I love and who's here to support me. It was, it was just, it was completely eye-opening. So I wanted to share some of that with you. I love standing up here. I can talk at conferences. I, I, I can talk all day about facts and about numbers and about truth, but speaking from my heart is really hard. And so I found a way to kind of connect the two. It's a little bit of a crutch for me, but um, I'm hoping that for those of you that maybe need a little bit more proof or a little bit more substance, a little bit more of a measuring stick that, uh, that it'll help with the connection. So to get started here, I um, want to pull up one of, th this is one of the first verses and I'd read the Bible as a child, but I'd never really had that spiritual connection with, with really anything until I got to be an adult. And it's probably four or five years ago, this popped up and I read it and I was like, oh, this is really cool. All right. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now this is written by Paul in his letter to the Romans. Uh, and Paul's gonna be a big part of what we talk about today because I think his journey has been something that I've been able to learn from and kind of connect all this together. But as I was reading this, even last week preparing for, for this weekend, two words stuck out to me that never really stuck out before and that's test and approve. And out of all the things we read in the Bible, you don't find many, you don't find many pieces of scripture that say, hey, here's God's will, but we're going to let you test and approve it, right? Most of this is so prescriptive. It's here's what you need to do. And that's the way Paul was the majority of his entire life. He was walking around telling people exactly what he thought they needed to do. But here, Paul is saying test and approve, right? So what that means is that we have the opportunity to take these things that happen in our life. We have the opportunity to make changes, to receive God's message, to feel his presence, test how we can apply that in our life and then approve to make it a permanent part of our life. This is giving us the right to acceptance, to listening to God's word. And so as you think through that, right, there's all these different parts of us as a, as a, as a human being, someone with a soul, that have to think about when we, when we go through this, right? When we're thinking about what can we do better, you know, there's the way we talk, the way we act, the way, the way that we, um, you know, love. And through that, uh, I actually, five years ago, started this kind of leadership process where I was introduced to something called the Enneagram. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. The Enneagram is a model for being able to kind of help 
personalities get grouped together and understand what relative strengths and weaknesses are. It has a great presence in a business setting because it helps us find our strengths and weaknesses, but I never really found it to be something that was a spark plug for spiritual connection. But that's what it ended up being for me. Understanding my strengths and my weaknesses and the strengths and weaknesses of, of people in my family helped me understand how to build a more cohesive bond with the people around me and kind of tone down some things I needed to tone down that were preventing others from being able to rise up. So if you kind of like take the way that we're the architecture, right? This is, and I don't want to pretend to believe that for a second I can imagine what God was thinking when he built us, but I do know that he was built in the likeness of him, right? And we do know that we have the body, the mind, and then sometimes spirit and heart get grouped together but I want to separate those out for a second here because I think there's a spiritual component of this and there's also truly the heart component of it. And the way this, this picture kind of shows us, it, it shows balance, right? Like all these circles are all kind of the same size on the outside and the one in the middle is the biggest one. This, is, this, is, this to me is God's will. This to me is finding the Holy Spirit. This is finding peace in your life, peace, joy, happiness, and all that kind of good stuff. But very few of us actually are at this point, right? We have circles in here that are bigger than others. I can tell you for me, no surprise, body is taking up 95% of that pie, or at least it was for a long time. And it doesn't just mean your physical body, but it means I'm an act first. I'm impulsive. I'm responsive. I'm reactive. I do. The first thing when someone tells me something's wrong, I say, what can I do? Right? I don't say I'm sorry. And trust me, I've gotten plenty of lessons from my loving family on how to fix that. But, but to me, you know, and, and part of this too is the way that we're all built, right? There's genetics, there's, there's kind of the way that we were designed, but there's a, there's a nature component to this, right? We can be designed in a certain way, but we, again, have to test and approve, right? How these different elements of our soul manifest themselves in our day-to-day lives. And so I wanted to go on this journey on how I've tried to figure out where I have body taking up a lot of space, right? How I've been able to shrink that down. And as I was kind of thinking through this, I don't even remember how I stumbled upon it, but it was all these errors of pointing. Read about Paul, read about Paul. So when I'd read about Paul before, I understood his, uh, the Apostle Paul, kind of his journey, but there were some parts that I just completely did not get the depth of until I had this perspective. So what I want to do today is kind of go through the Enneagram real quickly. Again, this is, this is just a model. It's, it's a measuring stick. It's not meant to be like oh my gosh, I'm this personality type, therefore I must be this way. But it does help us see where we have strengths and weaknesses. And then I also want to go show how Paul went through his own kind of Enneagram-like journey to go from where he was to where he, is to where he ended up. So this is the Enneagram. Um, what they've done is they've taken basically, so the numbers eight, nine, and one up in the top, those are kind of like the body types. Those are acting, Right? Two, three, and four are the heart, and five, six, and seven are the mind. And the way this, this, this works is you go online, you, you, you take a test. Uh, now, you know, one of the challenges with this is that it's based on your perceptions of yourself. Um, so, you know, there's always some variability there. You have to use your heart and really feel like this is me, right, once you kind of get the, the diagnosis back, right? And what it does is based on how you answer these questions, it'll kind of give you some guidance on here's sort of the personality type you are, here's what your strengths are, and here's potentially what your weaknesses are. And then on top of that, here's how you act in social settings versus one-on-one. Here's areas that maybe you can open up to allow other personality types if you're working in a team setting, 
right, to become you know more enabled, right, uh, as far as being able to contribute to the to the final thing, you know, objective that that, that we're working on as a team. And so I again use this a lot as 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 a team tool, but what it told me about me and my challenges was just so spot on that I just hooked into it and I just kept researching, kept learning and, and finding connections. So I want to run through these real quick. Um, we'll start with number one, uh, actually we'll start with number eight and work around. So these are the body types, right? You have the challenger, which is, uh, these folks are commanding, protective, they're, they're typically the boss type people. That is unfortunately what I am. <laughs> And although it has lots of strengths, it has lots of weaknesses we'll get into in a second. I love being an eight now that I've learned how to control it. But um, it's, it, you know, again, the whole kind of this, this ability to be protective and this ability to kind of drive things forward using control can provide a lot of challenges, right? We'll talk about it in a second. Number nine is the peacekeeper. Um, these folks typically are accepting, they're supportive, they're, they're the one everyone wants to be friends with because there's never any drama. Those are nines, all right? The ones are perfectionists, and these people get completely kind of consumed with this sort of ethical uh, uh, or moral right or wrong, and they're so good at making sure that we fine-tune every little piece in order to get to perfection. Um, Paul was a one. The number two is the giver. These are the empathy uh, driven folks that love to give. They love to care for people. They just get their energy off of making someone else smile. I'm jealous of those people. Uh, number three is the achiever. The achiever, these are uh, super uh, competitive folks. Uh, Michael Jordan was a three. Um, lots of sports people. Uh, Bill Clinton was also a three. Um, so as you can see, there's, there, there can be some positives and, and negatives there. But these folks are driven by the adaptability, right? Their ability to roll with the punches and just make the best out of any situation. The four is the individualist. These are the kind of quiet, creative, sensitive types. Lots of, you know, everyone from Billie Eilish to Edgar Allan Poe, right? All, and all the artists in between. Those are typically the fours. Very introverted, very, very in touch with the emotions of themselves and, 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 and around them. The fives are the investigators. These are our more technical or knowledge-based folks. They're driven by knowledge. They're driven by um, you know, just being able to, to learn more about, about whatever it is that they're interested in. Bill Gates was a five. Uh, number six is the loyalist. loyalist. Uh, these folks are, um, they're very committed to right and wrong. They're kind of like the perfectionists in the sense they've got that right or wrong barometer down really well, but they're, but they're so loyal to what they believe in from a sense of the people standpoint, right? They're the one that's always going to be there if you need if you need some kind of help and with some kind of a dilemma and you're trying to figure out the right or wrong way to approach something, they're the person that, that you talk to, whoever that is in your life that seems to always be able to talk you off the ledge. Those are the sixes. They're very committed to what they believe is right and wrong, and they're great at supporting uh, in, in a group setting. Number seven are the enthusiasts. This is what I wanted to be. These are the fun people. They're the ones that know where the party is. They're the ones that, that are the adventurers. They're the skydivers. They're the skateboarders. They're all those people in our lives. That, that pushes outside of our comfort zone to do something fun. Um, and there's all kinds of really fun, uh, as I was going through this and just learning more about how to apply this, they've taken the Marvel characters and assigned them with Enneagram numbers. They've taken the Star Wars characters. They've taken presidents. Obama and Reagan were both nines. They were both the peacekeeper. But you see completely different, and it's great because it just takes politics out of it, two completely different sides of the political spectrum, but both had the same drive. And that's for unity, peace, structure, 
and you know, this ability to, to create a supportive environment. Um, President FDR was a seven. FDR is cred uh, back in, you know, around World War I, World War II area, was credited with creating a lot of the public works systems that we have. And um, the, I brought him up because we were in Colorado last week at the National Rocky Mountain National Park. That was an FDR idea. Uh, did so many things to build our, build our, our country and, and create all these new ways of supporting uh, things that are beyond just living, right? So this is great, right? And it's awesome to kind of look in here. And as you take this, right, there's, there's a sense of uh, healthy and unhealthy states. So as an eight, I know in my healthy state, I'm in the command center and everything is going exactly to plan. Everyone's doing what they need to do. That never happens. So we very rarely am I in a truly healthy state, right? Number nine is kind of the same thing. We're never at all completely at peace. And as a matter of fact, you look at all of these, there's really no concept in humanity of 100% of any of these things. There's always going to be challenges, right? So what I want to do next is take this and talk about where we're in our negative states. Second uh, Corinthians 12 says, my grace, this is Jesus saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Again, Paul writing that, where, and when we talk about Paul in a second, it's like, that does not sound like a Paul thing to say, but he got it when he, when, when he, when he acknowledged those weaknesses, amazing things started happening. So what someone actually did is they took this, they, and they took kind of the, the, the weaknesses, and they actually associated them to the seven sins, plus a couple bonus ones, because there's nine numbers on here, so we had to create two extra. But oh, this, was, this was fascinating. So the peacekeeper, number nine, we'll start there and kind of work our way around, sloth. And if you think about it, right, someone who is very complacent can become too complacent to the point of, I'm not dealing with any of this. Sloth is kind of like their biggest kryptonite. It's their biggest Achilles seal. The perfectionist, wrath. You can be so driven to be perfect that you're just taking out everyone on the, on the path to perfection. The giver, pride. Givers can give to the point where they have just given more than they even have to give, and it just turns into, well, you know what? I'm too good for these people. They don't deserve it, right? The achiever, deceit. And in business, we find lots of achievers. These are the, the, the sales guys. These are the people that are just driven every day. I mean, they wake up and just smell success. Well, when things aren't going their way, they'll find ways to win. And that's when deceit comes in. You get the lying, the cheating, you know, moving numbers around, things magically happening. And, you know, you look at the, the sports history and all the kind of scandals around cheating and things. It's always that deceit that makes the news, right? Number four, the individualists. They're very introverted, and so their, their sin is envy, right? They look at themselves. They look at what they have, and they feel this connection with what they have. But then they see what else everyone else has, and they're like, that's not fair, right? How come I can't have that? And, and kind of end up in this reclusive state. Number five, the investigator, again, kind of like the Bill Gates style, greed. And it's not greed for money, it's greed for knowledge. Have you ever been around someone who's like the smartest person you know, and you know they know the answer to something, but they just refuse to say it because they want to hold on, they want to keep that card in their back pocket? That's that greed coming out. They're so smart that, you know, they have the ability, they just don't have the desire to contribute. The loyalists, number six, uh, fear. So loyalists are really driven with a safe environment, right? They're driven with the sense of connection to safety, and when that's not there, they will put the walls up and immediately go into fear mode. Number seven, the enthusiasts, my party animals, gluttony, 100%, easy, right? 
And then eight, lust. And when I first saw lust, I was like, I don't know if I like that one. I want to pick a different sin. And then I realized that's kind of part of lust. (laughs) Lust is more than just wanting something. It's wanting more of whatever it is that you think that you want, even if it's not what you need. And challengers, especially lust for power, they lust for control, they lust for dominance, right? And, you know, the, 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 the path to getting through these is whatever, whichever one it is. And, and, and again, like I encourage you, I, I, I think it's great. Th- these tests are great. They're not meant to be like 100% prescriptive, spend some prayer over it, but they're good to kind of create some direction. And I knew that directionally speaking, I was on that action center and I needed to work a little bit more on my heart and my mind and spend a little bit less time on acting. Um, and the, when I heard lust, it was, uh, it, it it made me think the number of times I was blindly ambitious or the number of times I just, I, I would just put roadblocks up because it wasn't my way. And, you know, early, I was lucky enough to be early in my career to have some great coaching to help me through it, but it didn't really fix my personal life. I still had those moments where I just throw the walls up and say, I'm not comfortable with this, it's not happening. So as we kind of start absorbing this and, and you kind of start getting a feel for for where your strengths and weaknesses are and going back to what Paul said about, you know, strength is in your weakness. The real question is how do we get past these, right? How do we get, all of these things are a manifestation of one of those circles in that first picture I showed being bigger, whether it's the body, the heart, or the mind. And, and again, I go back to, you know, the giver, heart. You can have that be too big to where it over, to where completely overshadows your mind and your body, which sounds crazy. Whoever says, oh, sorry, you have too much heart, right? But the reality is, is that we all get to a point where anything in excess ends up being painful. So as we start talking about Paul here and transition to this, as I mentioned before, Paul was a one. We're going to see that some of what Paul's wrath, you know, talk about Paul's wrath. One of the quick other things I want to mention here is the arrows. I know I kind of skipped over that because it, it's a little messy there. But what those arrows mean is you can see for a number one, there's one arrow going towards it and one arrow going away from it. So what this suggests is as a one, if I'm in a negative state or if I'm in, a, in, a, in an unhealthy place, I want my kind of path to, um, to happiness is through what a seven does. So what that says is that folks that are perfectionists need to be more adventurous. And if you become more adventurous, you start opening up all these additional possibilities for yourself. The error going from the one to the four is where we go when we're in our bad place. And a perfectionist, when they become so tested with, with what they believe is right and wrong, and they've just been thrown, they just burn out and they go into a shell. And that's what, that's what being in that four state is. So the reason I bring that up is, again, talking about Paul, take, take notice of where the areas, what is it that God did to help Paul grow by connecting him with the seven? And what is it he did to let Paul just kind of cool down by connecting him with the four? Okay. So I'm going to jump into some scripture here. Now, to set this up, uh, Paul is introduced as Saul. He grew up as um, as a Pharisee and, you know, trained under the synagogues, and he was, he was, like the enforcer of the Jewish community. And when we first meet Saul, as his name was prior to his conversion, 
Saul had just witnessed the execution of a man by Stephen, named by Stephen. Stephen was, a, uh, was an Israelite who was preaching the news of Jesus. Paul and Jesus both were alive around the same time. Um, the resurrection occurred right when Paul was in his you know, mid to early 30s. And uh, so at that time, you know, the news was spreading of this. Stephen was going to the, to the um, Jewish leadership and say, hey, you guys are doing all kinds of stuff, worshiping all these idols and doing all this other stuff. Like, let's talk about what, this, what Jesus has done for us and the, the peace, love, and joy that can, can come through that testimony. And um, he, was, he was martyred for that. So at least in Acts, one of the accounts is kind of like the first martyr of, of, of post-resurrection time. And in the very first uh, section here where Paul gets introduced as Saul, says as, uh, this is Acts chapter 7, starting line 57. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. This is Stephen. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coat at the feet of a young man named Saul. So right there, you learn about Saul. Does not sound like a stand-up guy. Shortly after, Acts 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. There's the wrath. So when we meet Paul, he is in a state of 100% full-on seeing red wrath. He's going door-to-door, dragging people out, throwing them in handcuffs, and persecuting them for their beliefs. So he got to a point to where Israel wasn't good enough, Jerusalem wasn't good enough, and he wanted to spread this persecution, and so he was going to go to Damascus and continue on his tirade. Starting in chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Oops. Now get up and go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So when you, hear, when you look at this, okay, Jesus found Saul. He's like, hey, you shouldn't be doing this anymore. He blinded him. Why did he choose blindness? Like, if this is a punishment, to me, I'd be, I'd be shutting his mouth because that's what was causing a lot of the problems. His eyes weren't really doing a lot of damage. It was his mouth that was doing the damage. So maybe this wasn't a punishment. Maybe this isn't one of those wrath of God moments. Maybe this was a wake-up call. And that's the first kind of takeaway from this is that God gives us these painful, painful wake-up calls. Saul um, wandered his way to Damascus after this, and for three days ate nothing, uh, drank nothing. And um, meanwhile, Jesus reached out to someone named Ananias in Damascus and said, hey, when this Saul guy comes around, 
take care of him, and then I want you to lift his blindness after the third day. And Ananias says, are you sure this is the same guy we're talking about? God says, or Jesus says, I want, he's going to be my mouthpiece for the good news. He's going to be the, the guy that creates this, this change to follow Jesus. And Ananias is like, are you sure? Like, were we talking about the same person here? So even then, you could see that there was doubt. And as we go through this story, he carried, Paul carried that doubt with him in a lot of places he went. But Ananias ends up healing him, and he's able to see. And then, just wanted to go through the timeline of kind of, you know, his, what happens in the rest of his life, and then we'll kind of focus in on a couple of these points. But for 10 years, he like hid and ran. So imagine this, you're walking down the road, out of nowhere, you get struck with this blindness, and then you don't do anything for 10 years. Now, as someone who is an action-centered person, that is painful. That is painful. And I have found that in my life, like, when I'm at this point where I feel like I've got to take action, that is absolutely the moment God has given me to say, pump the brakes. Sit down, think, feel, connect. And that's exactly what Paul did. For 10 years, he had to undo all this learning that he had uh, gone through uh, through the synagogues and, and through the, the, the Pharisee journey and kind of relearn things from the way of Jesus. So he spent years studying, learning from Jesus, understanding what the, what the good news really was. And then he spent a lot of time on the run because he had a lot of people coming after him after what he did. And then on top of that, they found out that he was working with Jesus. So now he basically had ticked off both sides. <laughs> Whether you were pro-Jesus or against Jesus, there was someone coming after you. So we spent a lot of time running and didn't really, didn't really, do, there's not a whole lot of, so if you look at, the, at these, these various letters that, that he wrote during his imprisonment and his various journeys, there's bits and pieces you can pull about what he did during those 10 or 12 years, but there's not a whole lot. Um, and you have to go into kind of like historical speculation to really understand, to really kind of get some theories, but nothing really points to anything other than he just needed a timeout. And so this was Paul's timeout. This was his opportunity to reset his focus of center. And for all of those that kind of question why Jesus had picked Paul in the first place, I mean, this guy's, ones are like laser beams. You just got to make sure they're pointed to the right place. And he needed to be reset as to what his true north was, what his center, his spirit was telling him, what his soul was directing him to do. And I think that's what happened in these years. So as he goes in through uh, this hiding period, he comes out and goes all over the world. And so I, I'm not going to get into all this stuff, but as you can see, like he did quite a bit of traveling over a, a brief, uh, you know, I'm say it's about 10 years, maybe less than that period, um, before he was ended up being imprisoned uh, the, the last time and shipped off to, that's what that orange line is, uh, shipped up off to that, that Greece area. But it's always interesting looking at maps from back then because you don't really know where this is in relation to today. Um, that whole area kind of in the top and the right, that's, that's uh, uh, like the Turkey area. Over here to the left, you can see the boot, right? We all know where the boot is, that's Italy. All right, so in between those two is Greece. And then um, some of the area that now is known as like Romania, Bulgaria, those kind of like southwestern parts of Asia. So he hit up a lot of different territories and, and did a lot of talking in a very small amount of time. That's a hard thing to do by yourself, right? So the next thing that, the first thing that God does when he calls him out of his hideout 
and into action, into his first missionaries, he partners him with someone. Barnabas. So, uh, we're introduced to Barnabas in Acts 4.36. Um, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, talk about crazy. Encouragement, son of encouragement, that's a seven. Back to the Enneagram. I believe that in this case, he was being connected. Paul was being connected with the personality and the spirit of someone that he needed to drag him into that adventure mode. Right? And, and I think about putting this in my, 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 my life. I have five children, and not a single one of them is wired to be action first. I have, I, I work at a company of five to 600 people. I'm a minority compared to everyone else when it comes to being action first. And as much as that feels like a burden, it feels like I'm doing something wrong, I think the reality is, is I'm supposed to be good at that. That is my calling, is to be good at that. Because they, this world needs people to take action, but they also need to be grounded. They need to, they need to have love and thought as part of that process. And so, whatever like you believe about how our souls are created and why they're created, and without making this selfish and about me, I am so incredibly blessed to have a family full of people that ground me. That, that, that force me to think and to feel before I act. And I believe that's what Paul, that's the gift that he got here. And going back to being blinded, um, I was actually sitting here, uh, standing here, you know, worship with uh, just a few minutes before we started. And I noticed, which is not something you get to do very often, because normally I'm on this side. So it was, it was really fun to do that. And I kind of felt out of place. I didn't know what I, I was kind of like pretending to play the bass, you know, didn't really know what I was... <laughs> And I, I, I know I caught myself closing my eyes. And I feel like when I feel like that connection is coming to me, I have to close my eyes and blind myself. I have to turn my other senses off to force my body to accept the spirit. And I felt that. And I f- believe that's what David went through. I'm sorry, David, <laughs> I looked at you. I believe that's what Paul went through. <laughs> So the, the whole blinding and the closing our eyes and the shutting down of the senses and allowing us to reflect and to process, that was a gift. Having Barnabas go seek out Paul, which, by the way, Paul didn't come and say, okay, I'm ready. Barnabas went and found him and said, hey, we're ready. Let's, let's mount up and get out of here. We got some work to do. But check this out. As, uh, um, after, after Barnabas was able to bring Paul in and say, okay, let's get this thing going. The rest of the disciples were, again, not too thrilled with having Paul involved. Acts 9.26, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So he kind of was on trial before, it was like picking teams for kickball, and he was, you know, like, am I going to get picked or not? And Barnabas had to be the one that kind of convinced the disciples to accept him. So, again, the second kind of takeaway from this is the people that God puts around us, 
they encourage us, even though it feels like conflict and it feels like arguments, they encourage us to use the parts of our soul that we're not using enough. And when you get to a point where you're accepting that and you're starting to reflect on it and make adjustments, it's, that's when you start kind of getting that equilibrium across all the different components that pull at us every day. Um, so we've talked about, we've talked about you know, how, how we kind of went on this journey and the different things that impacted his ability to be successful with what he did. One of the other things that I think, I, I wish I had more time to look at this because it, it just fascinates me, is even the style of Paul's writing as you go through the, chronolog- the, the chronology of his, the timeline of the different books that he wrote. He still has that, hey, this is the difference between right and wrong. However, he's, he has uh, been associated with some of the most, I think, powerful scripture that, that the New Testament has, and it hasn't been because of his, you must do this, you must do that. It's been from his heart. And it's been from his mind. And I thought this was a very cool example of like where his mind was. Now, this is Second uh, Timothy. This was sort of towards that area of, um, of imprisonment where he, again, was blessed with this, even though it's definitely not a blessing to be under house arrest in Rome. Um, he was blessed with this time to sit and reflect and think. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we're unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. And again, just like going from this mode of, I am, I'm going against everything that Jesus is teaching to something like this, the amount of thought and reflection and feeling and living that had to go behind writing that, that is not something he pulled out of a fortune cookie. This is definitely, there is heart and soul and pain behind that. And so I just want to spend a couple, just highlight a few parts of this. Um, if we die with him, then we will also live with him. That's the first thing he says in here. Us dying with him is everything that we just talked about. It's that way that we feel we should be versus the way that he feels we should be. And when you give up those parts of, those defense mechanisms and those parts of your personality that, that, are, that are maybe preventing you from moving forward, you will, you will start feeling what it is to live with him. And as much struggle as Paul went through throughout his life, for him to say something like this just shows that the struggle was paled in comparison to the payback that he got in peace. Um, if we, the, going towards the end, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. I, I did some research on this because I was like, does that mean that the Spirit remains faithful to us if we're unfaithful. And some, some translations of this maybe suggest it means he remains faithful to his message or to the gospel or to love and faith. And regardless of how you interpret it, what that means to me is that even when we're messing up and even when we're not doing what we're supposed to do, he remains faithful to us being able to achieve that balance, that balance that brings out the Spirit. And it doesn't matter how many times you get beat up and knocked down and dragged out and all these different things that happen in your life, you have this ability to pop back up and be stronger. And that's what that picture is on the right. So that's a lotus flower. I've used probably, if you're not in the novel's house, if you're in the Noblet household, you've heard me say this before. Uh, the lotus flower is like one of my greatest ex- uh, examples of nature proving us that 
pain has got a purpose. The lotus flower, they did this test. So the lotus flower grows traditionally in like the murkiest, most disgusting water, and it's got to push itself through layers of dirt and all these other things to survive. And they've tried to take lotus flowers and just put them in these pristine environments, you know, like a hydroponic system or, you know, an indoor growing place, and they won't survive. They'll grow, they'll sprout, and then they die off. And what they found is that the lotus flower cannot survive until it's gone through its breaking in period. It has to go through that period of pushing itself through all the muck and all the junk and all the garbage and all the mess that life, comes, that life throws at you in order to produce its flowers. And once it produces flowers, it's able to accept the sun and able to cross-pollinate and all that stuff. And so I, I, I use that a lot because I actually learned about this reading. Something has, there's a, a, a very interesting book, not Christian related, but it's called How to Live Like a Monk. And it's about a business guy that goes and decides to be a monk for a year. And all these things that open up. Um, and, and he talked about this and how this was kind of a saying in their monastery was, was that through all the challenges and struggle, the lotus flower always survives in the dirtiest water and always is one of the most beautiful flowers in the field based on where it grows. And then finally, I would be remiss if we were talking about Paul and I didn't use this. Uh, so when Aaron and I got married, she wanted um, the kids to read the scriptures. I'm sure 75% of the weddings every day do. So I'll just read it first. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Now, again, without being anywhere close to the level of studies that I'm at now and on my journey, I like that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful, yeah, let's read it, sure. And, but I didn't know Paul had written this. Because I didn't know Paul had written Corinthians. I just knew it was written by one of the guys after Jesus died. I had that part down. Um, and I certainly didn't know the journey Paul went through to get from where he was to writing those words. And for us to see someone, again, who's got that laser-focused center of attention to go after what he believes is right and wrong and be able to write something like this, it's, it's a magical transition, right? Um, but again, you know, one of the things I said is that I, the thing that I was the most surprised about is, is some of the things with Paul's directness in his writing that we expect from that type one didn't really go away. Like, he still had that part of him. Jesus wasn't saying, you know what, I know you're a perfectionist. We're just going to put that aside and we're going to bring up these other things. He built harmony across them. And you can see that because in, his, in, in the line... Um, it always protects, it always trusts. Protection and trust are extremely important to someone who's in that type one Enneagram, the perfectionist. He took what he was able to build in his comfort zone, the protection and trust, and he was able to expand that into love. So what you get with this is Paul, during his transformation, was able to go from being completely body center to showing that his mind, his heart, and his body can all work together, that he had peace in his soul, that he had hope in his spirit, and he had to do it the hard way, just like everyone else. Um, 
but he didn't lose who he was. And so, when, so our natural indication, if, if someone's telling me, you know, you need to be nicer, I'm, nicer, I'm like, I'm not changing who I am. If people don't like me, that's their problem. You know, there's people like that all the time. And I think that's the thing, like, in order for us to get to where we want to be, we don't have to change who we are. We just have to sprinkle a little bit of the, the good stuff on it. Just put a little bacon on top, right? Put a little bit of love on there. Put a little bit of, of, of thought in there before you act. And that was kind of the, um, that, was, that was when I hit this, as I mentioned before, just going through things and like feeling like I had this aha moment. That was the aha moment for me is that half of the things that were so bad that hit my family, it really actually weren't about me. They weren't really about us. Yeah, sure, it impacted us, but these are other people's battles to fight. These are things they need our support. These are things where we need to give them space, maybe. Um, and ultimately, we need to be more connected from a heart center as we, as we go through these things. And it's been work, it's been personal, it's all of those things, right? All wrapped into one. I think once the people that I see that, that feel at the most at peace, they find that formula for them and they use it everywhere. I mean, it transcends across. It's not just like, here's my work life, my family life. We are, our souls do not morph based on where we're at. Our soul is who we are and it's our being. And our ability to balance what supports our soul through those events is what helps us find happiness. So finally, I'm pretty close to on-time landing. Um, there, I, I did a lot of research on like, what are the different things we can do to kind of help find this balance? So knowing that for me, the body perspective is, is, is so prevalent in everything that I do and say and think and feel, how do I bring those other pieces in my life in? And so there's some great um, options here. So, for body, right, it's all about how you take care of yourself, your exercise, your sleep, nourishment, diet, all those kinds of things you do every day to take care of yourself and also to kind of connect with nature. It's everything external to your environment. For the mind, it's reflection, reading and writing, things like hobbies. I, I put mental detox on here because there is so much stuff and I'm not here to, I'm not a doomsday speaker about social media, but the the volume and quality of what comes out of social media right now is, it can, it can mess with how you think, right? If, if you don't get a little bit of a time to just kind of reset, right? And then through the heart, it's gratitude, it's relationships, reconnecting, giving, having curiosity and acceptance. And so, um, and then of course, at the bottom here, you have your spirit uh, with prayer, worship, ministry, and all those things that kind of rearrange that because I feel like those are the, that's the bridge. And one of the things when I think about through my personal journey, being a check-the-box Christian for so many years, going from that to feeling like I'm a part of this, um, it was my entrance into the praise band and the ability to worship. And when I'm at my, when I feel the best and the most fulfilled out of that, it's because that worship has connected these three things. I feel, I think, and I see and hear beauty. And when, when that happens, like I get this state of zen and peace that is just, it's not something I can, that no drug, no, uh, no self-help book, nothing else can give me. I've just got to, I've got to take it, right, as it comes. And, um, and so I think that the ability to, to use our spirituality and our ministry as a gateway and a bridge between these three things is, um, it, it, it can just completely, it, it's helped change the way that I, 
the order in which I do things. I've got some additional filters now between my brain and my mouth that were missing for a while. I've been able to put those and get those suckers installed and wired up. Um, they're working at about 40% of the time right now, so just to set the bar. But it's, uh, um, it's been a great journey because I actually do sit and reflect and I think about, okay, I made the intention. You know, I, I read somewhere, if the eyes are the gateway to the soul or the eyes are the windows of the soul, try looking at your eyes in the mirror for 15 seconds every morning. Just walk out, go to your bathroom, do, and, you know, don't focus on whether your makeup's good and your hair's in place and I got that bald spot covered up. None of that, right? You look into your eyes and you look at the, what your what your eyes are telling you about the type of person you're going to be today. And it's amazing. Like, I started doing that. I'm like, this is so goofy. I'm like, yep, I see that I'm tired and I don't want to work today. (laughs) And I definitely did not get enough sleep last night because I was worried about those two things. And and I started going from that to, okay, what am I going to, what is it that, Forget about what I want to accomplish or what I want to do today. How do I want to feel? How do I want to be? Like, what is, what is my, where is my center of gravity today? And it's a great way to give yourself a pep talk, but it's also a great way to hold yourself accountable because that is, that is part of this. Paul had to be held accountable by Jesus himself <laughs> before he could be who he wanted to be. And hopefully none of us have to be walking down the road and get blinded in order for us to get there. But we do, again, get those moments of blindness that help shut down our senses, reboot the processor, 1970s model in here, so it takes a little bit, and then get reconnected with life. So that's what I have to say today. That's, uh, this has been, um, I, I encourage, if you're interested in this, go online, do some research on the different types. There's a great book called The Road Back to You that's actually written um, with a Christian focus for the Enneagram. And so it's a real neat, we, it, for, It'll help you kind of diagnose, diagnose. It'll help kind of instruct you on what your strengths and weaknesses are, what your personality type might be, and then some great prayers to help support that. Like, Lord, give me the strength to let go of, yeah, you know what I mean? Right. So um, uh, that, that's a great resource. And you, just another thing, if you decide to go online and take one of those tests, and there's a lot of different versions of them. There's some that are cheap that uh, are free that, that are pretty good, but they may be misleading I suggest if you're going to do that, maybe take a few different ones to kind of triangulate it and then think about it for a second. And again, focus both on the strengths and weaknesses. Do you feel like this describes you? And then if it does, these are some options that when the Lord gave us, uh, the Lord's laws commanded the Sabbath, it's a great opportunity to spend some time to focus on these things. I think that's really what the Sabbath is about. It's not just about taking a break. It's about taking a break from your body and the work and focusing on the mind and the heart that maybe don't get as much TLC every week.